Hey there, lovely souls. I'm your host, Allison Toth, and I want to give you a warm welcome to Wishing You Wellness, the podcast where mental health meets spirituality. When it comes to rock bottom, I've been there more than once, and I know what it's like to wake up daily to mental health struggles. On this podcast, I share insight and stories to help motivate and inspire you and to help you feel less alone in this. In Wishing You Wellness, we talk inner child healing, mindset shifts, radical self-love, the art of intentional living, and so much more. Think of me as your mental wellness bestie. If you're ready to step into your power and change your life, just hit play. Hello, lovely souls. Welcome back to another week of Wishing You Wellness here on Anchor, Spotify, Apple, all of your favorite platforms ever. It is so good to see you, whether it's your first time here or you've been listening since day one. I really, really appreciate you being here. And I'm so glad that you're a part of this community where we can just grow and show up together. And I just love it. So today has been a busy week. I just recorded an episode yesterday with a meditation teacher, and I will be posting that soon. And today I am doing another episode with somebody. So it's been a very big week for guests. I'm feeling a lot of forward momentum. That Sagittarius full moon really still has me just like on a different plane of existence, and I'm living for it. So to tell you a little bit about the person that is on the show today, well, it all comes back to this one night at Taco Bell. I was at a Taco Bell at about three in the morning on a Thursday night, and I had ordered two Taco 12 packs and I didn't have the money to pay for them. So the guy was telling me I was going to have to start working at Taco Bell in order to pay off these tacos. And then this guy named Garrett steps behind me and says, I got you. I'll pay for the tacos. I'm totally fucking kidding. We actually met in outpatient recovery. We both were there. I think we started at the same time. Yeah, I think we started at the same time. Um, If you don't know already, an outpatient recovery program is... Similar to inpatient, but you get to go home at the end of the night. So you come in, you do kind of like workshopping, you do group check-ins, you build coping skills and strategies, and you get your meds kind of like leveled out and stabilized. And so I met Garrett in outpatient. We immediately bonded. I noticed that he was just very intelligent emotionally. And to me, that is such a green flag in somebody. Um... So yeah, today we're going to share a little bit about our outpatient experience, about what mental health looks like in your love life, about dating as an addict in recovery, and so, so, so much more. (laughs) Cough, cough. Anyway, let's get into it. Garrett, thank you so much for being here, and I would love if you could just tell my listeners where you're from and what kind of led you to starting your journey to a better you and like your mental health journey. Thank you, Allison. Um, So I am from Southern Illinois in a town called Edwardsville. Um, I guess for many years, like I definitely struggled with connecting to other people. I struggled with depression and motivation, finding, you know, the energy to do, do things, live my life, even just finding things appealing. You know, I'm 24. So Obviously, it's always a struggle being a young adult and coming out of your teenage years, just trying to understand your identity. Who am I? What do I want to do with my life? Um, But I definitely think when you have mental health issues on top of that, it adds this whole other layer of how do I even feel about anything? Myself, other people, like what do I like? Who am I? Why do I have these thoughts? Why do I have these emotions? Um, And I tried to forever just deal with it on my own. 
because that's how I do it with everything, which is definitely one of the unhealthy behaviors I've been trying to change over the years, uh, learning to reach out to others, ask for help. But yeah, after just trying you know, to change my diet or get to sleep earlier or try this medication or do that, eventually got to a point where it was just I kept growing as a person, but I also kept crashing right back down. And, you know, I've learned that like healing is not linear. Um, Mental health is not something you can just solve. Uh, And sometimes like the biggest breakthroughs you have come from the biggest crashes where you really just, you know, bluntly fuck up or something goes, you know, shit just hits the fan. And yeah, I got to a point where like shit hit the fan. Um, <laughs> I was just like, I was in a really, really bad place. And I was just like, screw it. I got to get something more. Once a week therapy is not enough. This medication isn't enough. I need to really do something immersive. I need to do a deep dive. I need to be around other people. I need to take myself out of my comfort zone. And finally pushing myself to do that was... Definitely. I mean, it had to be the best decision I've ever made. It's one of those things where I like, I, I don't want to hold on or fixate on regret in any way. But it is one of those things where I'm like, wow, I definitely should have done this earlier. Definitely. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna like cling to that, because that's unhealthy too, which is what I've learned. Um, but it's still one of those things where I, I am really glad now that I did make that push. Ah, I love that. And I relate to that and resonate with that super heavily, especially the part where you said, I wish I had started this journey earlier because good gosh, like as I'm seeing relationships in my life improve, as I'm seeing how I feel about myself, how I feel about the world improve, I'm just like, damn, if I would have started this three years ago, shit, where would I be? Probably three years ahead of this, which would be awesome. And you guys, something that Garrett and I really wanted to talk about because it's something we share in common is the struggle of showing up in a relationship, in a romantic relationship, when you have a mental health condition or a personality disorder. Because as we know, dating and love are already a fucking minefield. And so when you throw into the mix the fact that you struggle deeply with yourself or, you know, with the world around you, it can be really tricky and really hard to navigate. Um... So Garrett, my question for you is how does mental health show up in your love life? Like what kind of struggles does that present? What kind of barriers? And yeah, what, what can you speak on with that? So I would say that, I mean, mental, my mental health issues showing up in my love life. I mean, for one thing, it definitely even prevents having a love life. Um, that's the, a huge issue is when you are really disconnected from other people, when you're really consumed by like extreme emotions, whether it's swings or you just get stuck in these states, you know, how are you supposed to connect with someone? How are you supposed to form like a relationship with them? How are you supposed to, you know, balance out and actually get on someone else's vibe, explore their world, explore their life? Um, Yes, yes, you are stuck in survival mode. And it's a huge struggle because when you're stuck in that state too, you also often will hyper crave some kind of intimacy, affection, love. Um, you want to be seen completely. I, I personally avoided relationships for many years. I've only ever been in one. And part of that was because inability to trust, inability co- to connect. But throughout that whole time, I knew, I did know deep down that there was like 
this desperate desire to have that connection. And when I did finally get into a relationship, you know, it was at a point where I was better than ever in my mental health, which is why I felt confident to, but also why I was able to, I could actually connect. And the problem I had though, is I was trying to ease into it. I wanted to be healthy. And then just like that, codependent immediately. I mean, I remember being within like a couple weeks of the relationship and I couldn't sleep on my own. It was painful. I would be so tense. I could, it was just agonizing. And then it was infuriating because it was like, you know, shit, how am I supposed to have a healthy relationship with this person when this is the state I'm in? Mm-hmm. And of course, why, you know, what kind of person am I attracted to? Someone who also has these issues. That's who I can relate to. That's who I can connect with. But when we both are dealing with, you know, extreme depression or anxiety or these disconnections, then you're never quite on balance with the person. You can't fully communicate, Mm -hmm. Um, having conversations to bridge the gap or, you know, work things out becomes really difficult. And communication is essential to any relationship. So everything starts to erode really quickly and it's hard to hold it together. And I think that a lot of what you're talking about and referring to is, wait, okay, sorry, I thought I stopped recording. (laughs) I think a lot of what you're talking about and referring to is like trauma bonding and this idea that we find people who are in the space that we are currently in. They're also struggling. They're also dealing with their shit. They're also projecting onto people. They're also kind of taking steps backward. And the reality is it can be really hard. It's possible for two people who are struggling to get out together, but it's really hard because one of you will start to climb out of it and then get sucked back down. And so that's why dating someone who maybe is a little bit further along on your mental health journey can be very beneficial for somebody who is deeply in a state of struggle. Because if you just go around finding other people struggling, it's very, very hard to overcome um, because you're both struggling. Something really interesting about Garrett and I, and I think this is a really neat perspective, is that him and I are on opposite sides of the personality disorder spectrum. I am diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, and he is diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. And both personality disorders, I think we can agree, are very, very stigmatized. We are seen as the villains, the bad guys, the crazies, the uncarings, you know, all of the things. And so I want to talk a little bit about what it's like to live with a diagnosis that causes people to kind of make a face or like feel a type of way about you before they even meet you. So what has that been like? And what's that process been for you just kind of like, I don't know, loving yourself through that and like having a relationship with yourself through the stigma of the media surrounding you? So I think it's been it's been really difficult because a lot of people have, you know, it's one of those things where it's like everybody's an expert on what you're going through, except for you, apparently. Um, people really want to take a lot of opinion and comment on your experience without really listening to why you, what you're actually experiencing um, and why you feel that sense of identification with your personality disorder, with, you know, a mood disorder, with any problem you're dealing with. And it's frustrating because what I've recently trying to really been emphasizing is that these like these disorders, personality disorders are not like a cast of villains in a Marvel movie. 
Like these are these are traumatized people. Yes, it's about trauma. It is about pain. It is about coping. Like every human personality is a pattern of thinking, a pattern of feeling, and that's what drives your behavior. And there are some people where, because of the genes they have, because of the brain they were born with, because of the environment they were born into, they develop you know very extreme and toxic ways of coping. Where they either attach themselves to everyone or they disconnect from everyone, and it doesn't mean that they, you know, want to be doing those things. It doesn't mean it's ideal. It doesn't mean they even, you know, they often aren't even fully aware of it. I mean, I've spent many years where I knew something was wrong. I knew something was off. I just couldn't figure it out. I didn't have any sense to ask people for help. I did not trust people. I couldn't. I couldn't miss people. I couldn't connect with people. And it's not that I didn't want any of that. Oftentimes, I actually felt a lot of kind of resentment because I saw people having relationships, having fun, engaging with others, and I had no idea how to clue into that. I had no idea how to connect into that. I tried to talk to people and have normal friendships, but it just felt like everything was a lie. Everything was a manipulation. Everything was a performance. I just the only way I could really have any positive interaction was to just kind of figure people out, quote unquote, um, and then and then game them. You know, figure out like what do they like? What is their you know style? How do they talk? What are they interested in? And then just kind of reflect that back to them. But as soon as they're gone, it was like, man, I was just lying about all of that.、Mm-hmm. I was performing that. I'm a totally different person with every other person I meet. Like in one class, teachers would think I was kind of like wisecracking and sarcastic. In another, they thought I was this shy, sensitive boy.、Um, some people thought, you know, that I was like really dark or intimidating. Others thought I was super sweet. Like,、yeah. and it. And this is a phenomenon con- called masking, correct? Yes. Yes. So this is masking, where individuals who you know, if they're on the autistic spectrum, if they have a personality disorder, and you know, really everyone to some extent is having to cover up how they're really feeling, what they're really thinking, what they're going through. You know, whether it's little white lies or politeness, but it's like everything. It's on a spectrum, and the people who are on neurodivergent or personality disorders. Art is doing it all the time to the point where they really don't feel any sense of self, any sense of being truly honest or authentic, and that isolation is what aggravates them further. It you know makes it even worse, and it's why I think it's so important to destigmatize things that behaviors can be toxic and unhealthy and harmful, and that people need to be held accountable for that. But forgiveness is also essential. Understanding is essential. If you can't understand, you can't fix the problem. So, shaming someone, even if it does feel good, even if they've hurt you, even if you want to put them down for what they've done, it's it's ultimately just gonna go so far. Like you know, learning to set up boundaries, remove yourself from an unhealthy situation, and then learn to forgive just for your own sake is. I mean, it's essential. Yes, and I've read so many little articles about like recovering from narcissist abuse, recovering from borderline personality disorder abuse, and I think it's such a fine line because on the one hand, you want to understand that these personality disorders are not something that people chose. They people do not come out of the womb and go, "I would love to be histrionic, I would love to be hysterical, and need validation so much that I will do anything to get it." People are not born going, "I am antisocial. I feel very untrusting of people." 
people are put in situations and they go through traumas and different experiences that form these personality disorders. And when I came to find that out, it made it a lot easier for me to accept my borderline and a lot easier for me to start seeking help because I didn't think like, oh, something is inherently wrong with me. I realized this was a natural reaction to something that happened to me or a need that I didn't have met. And now I have to do the work on myself to overcome that. And so I think the other side of the coin then is the accountability because also there is such thing as narcissist abuse. There is such thing as people with borderline abusing and people who are histrionic being abusive. And it is very valid. You have to hold yourself accountable, right? When you get your diagnosis, when your psychiatrist says, hey, I think this is a problem, then the ball is in your court. And it's your job to do that work on yourself, to address those toxic tendencies, to kind of peek under at your shadow self and see those less desirable, like less good, less high vibe parts of yourself. Yes, I think that's totally, I love that point. And one thing I wanted to add to that, it just in relation to my own personal experience, when I was, you know, whenever I was younger in my adolescence and young adulthood, I, I definitely held on to these, like, I didn't even realize they were toxic beliefs, but it was this sense of, like, if you lie to me, if I catch you being hypocritical, then I can just completely be an asshole to you. Like, it's this such this all-or-nothing mentality where if I cannot trust you completely, if you're not totally consistent all the time, then you could betray me at any point. So I need to just cut you out of my life completely. And I didn't, I didn't see, like, I just was so emotionally disconnected from myself and understanding how someone's behavior like that would affect me that I didn't have any sense that how that would affect someone else. And, and, and the thing is too, like when I was, you know, when I was a child, like I was a very sweet kid. I was very affectionate, very loving, but I did go through traumatic experiences. I struggled with many, for many years with intensive, intrusive thoughts where, you know, around the age of seven, I would have these extremely violent images flash in my head and I would have panic attacks. I would cry, I would scream, you know, there was this disturbing image in my head that I could not escape from. It felt real. It was, you know, I mean, you think about how freaked out you can be as a child just watching a scary movie. Well, imagine if that movie is just playing out in your head and there's no escape from it. And you couldn't even say the word blood around me or else I would freak out. And after that, over time, I just shut down more and more to the point where nothing bothered me anymore. Nothing ever agitated me. Nothing ever upset me or disturbed me. And when you get into that state, you get yeah, you just get so disconnected from everything that those natural feelings of love or compassion, guilt, anxiety, embarrassment, shame, like all those feelings start to get so distorted or just numbed, warped, disconnected. And then when you get into your teenage years and all you can think about is, you know, violence, aggression, using people, hurting people, like it just becomes something that your brain is putting on overdrive because it's trying to get you to go on the attack. I mean, that is the thing is like, there's a degree to which uh, aggressive behavior, meanness, cruelty, manipulation is defensive. It's not healthy, it's extremely harmful and it's nothing, I don't wanna see it anywhere in the world. I don't wanna see it in politics, I don't wanna see it in families, I don't see it with little kids, with relationships anywhere. 
Like I want compassion and communication everywhere. But whenever I was younger, I just had this mentality of like every man for himself, kill or be killed, dog eat dog world. If people are positive and happy, oh, they're clearly just lying to themselves. That's not actually possible. Um, and it's taken me years to <laughs> unwrap all that bullshit. I mean, it is bullshit, but I was just trying to protect myself. And that's not an excuse. But I do hope people understand that because I think that's where that's the stepping stone to really healing both the person who was abused and the abuser. I think that's such an important narrative. Like abusers, yes, what is happening is not okay. It is negative. It is toxic. It is bad. We are no way saying it's okay. But abusers also need to be healed. And I'm not saying if someone beats you up, they deserve to like have treatment. I'm not saying that in any way, but I'm saying that someone who is, you know, gaslighting you emotionally being kind of shitty, it's okay to set that boundary and leave that person and say, you know, I love you so much sending you all the love, but this isn't the time. And once you have sorted out your issues and worked out your problems with yourself, you're a lot more apt to do well in a relationship and show up in a healthy way. Um, I also struggle with that negative mindset thing. I have so many weird mindsets that I didn't even realize weren't universal. Like one of mine is everybody cheats. Everybody cheats on their partner. And that's just inevitable in my brain. I just believe in my heart that no one can be faithful for their whole life. Another one I have is money is super effing scarce. And if I'm not busting my ass for it, I can't have money. Another one is like a black and white thought of if someone does me wrong, it was on purpose and they are trying to hurt me, which goes it does go along with my borderline, but that also ties deeply into my bipolar one, um, which has extreme fits of paranoia, if you will. And as we're talking about stigma, I think it's funny, Garrett, because we had been talking earlier about just like we had been talking about these intrusive thoughts. And for those people who are listening who may not know what that is, an intrusive thought is basically a thought that comes into your head that can be graphic, gory, violent, scary, and it's not your thought. Um, I think this is a really important thing for people to learn. Intrusive thoughts can be caused by so many things and thousands and thousands and thousands of thoughts go through your head every day and they are not all yours. They come from society, they come from TV, they come from past experience, they come from all kinds of shit. But like those intrusive thoughts can be really, really intense and extreme. Like there was a long period where I had to wear long sleeves because if I saw my wrist, I would just imagine something happening to them and I would freak out. And I think that a lot of times we play down mental health struggles. And I had a a prime example of that the other day and my friend just not understanding the severity of my bipolar, understanding the severity of my bipolar, I was like polka dot, (laughs) understanding the severity of my bipolar. And he had just asked, you know, is it just the mood swings, the ups and downs? And I was like, well, no, Um, sometimes if the med dosage isn't right, I sometimes have episodes where I hear something or I see something. And he was like, you hear shit, you see shit. And I was like, well, yeah, it's not like I'm seeing dragons fly out of the sky or anything, but in extreme fits of paranoia, for example, one time I was locked outside of my friend's house trying to get in and I saw her eyeball peeking through and I heard her whispering on the other side about not letting me in. I got in 20 minutes later, they weren't there. There was nobody there. And so it was 100% imagined, 100% a fit of paranoia. But this just goes to show you guys that 
like mental health issues, they are disabilities and it's something that you can work through and you can totally recover and not recover fully, but like work on your recovery journey and grow and understand yourself and how to best take care of yourself. But this shit is serious. And I think it's so important to not just destigmatize, but also normalize this so that people can get the help they need. Because Lord knows if I wasn't finally getting the help I need, who knows where I would be? I would still be an addict. I would still be at rock bottom. I would still be struggling. And so since I said the word addict, we might as well jump into this. I would like to talk with you a little, Garrett, about dating as someone with substance abuse issues because we have bonded over this before. I went through a three-year battle with Xanax. I am in my recovery journey. It's been a long time since I've relapsed, but I always like to tell people, this is a curb. There are ups and downs, and I don't want to get on here to you and be like, you'll stop taking drugs and you'll never take them again because there are ebbs and flows and ups and downs, but it's important to just stay consistent and make more good choices than bad. So Garrett, for you, dating was dating as someone with substance issues, like how does that show up in your relationships? Do you notice that kind of manifesting in any ways? Do you notice that your partner could be a good or bad influence? So I definitely noticed that I mean, your partner definitely can be a good or bad influence. Um, And in, like, dynamic ways, too. Because there's a way in which your partners can be um, supportive of you getting clean, you know, supposedly. But oftentimes it can be even more difficult to get clean because they really end up just kind of using it as a standard to hold you to. So if you slip up, then you get a lot of shame or a lot of judgment and you've completely failed. And now it's a huge personal thing for them. Um, And it's, you know, this disaster for them rather than a reflection of the issues you're struggling with. And if that just adds more shame and negativity, then it's even harder to get clean. And it can definitely be a huge issue too with just I mean, really, like any any addiction, whether you're using substances or there's like, you know, compulsive behavior. I mean, people who have shopping addictions, gambling addictions, like you are seeking out these thrills, this rush, maybe an escape. You're trying to feel a relief of anxiety or maybe relieving your anger or your depression. And it just becomes so consuming, so all-consuming. It clouds your vision, your worldview, your ambitions. You just get so dysregulated in your motivation. And then keeping up with, you know, chores or things around the house if you're living with your partner or just keeping up with date night and going out if you aren't living together or living together, Um, you know, tending to their needs, talking to them, dealing with their emotions – all of it gets so distorted because if you're high, if you're intoxicated, then you're not really present with them. And then when you're sober, you really want to use or you're hungover or you're out of it and then you're not really present either. So it really is just, I mean, it's so tricky. It's, and it's been frustrating too in my experience with using substances or just having mental health issues in general is you can't wait until... You're perfectly healthy to have friends, to date someone, to, you know, start a new job, to pursue your dreams. Like, you're always going to be dealing with something. But it is so difficult to figure out, well, how do I go about this in the healthiest way possible? How do I do this in a way that's actually sustainable and isn't just going to be a really explosive, dysfunctional kind of dynamic? 
Oh, I love that. I really, really love that. And I feel like I resonate to that even more so because all of my relationships up into my current one have been hot messes. And it's one of those things where I finally looked around after like six or seven literally failed relationships. And I was like, am I the problem? Could this be? Could it be me? Yes. And I've said that in an episode before, but it is so empowering to own your shit and be like, you know what? I had no idea what the fuck I was doing in that relationship. I was reacting all out of trauma response, all out of insecurity, all out of projection, and I didn't know any better. And so I try to show myself grace in those relationships and be like, yeah, I sucked. Yeah, I sucked really bad, but I didn't know what I know now. And what I know now I use to make sure I treat others to the very best of my capability at all times. Um, I also want to just talk a little bit about how it's been for me dating as an addict in recovery because I was dating someone at the time when I got into my addiction. Things didn't work out, obviously. I was an addict, and so I was not a healthy partner. We split. I spent some time by myself, and I met my current partner about four months, three months into the beginning of my journey towards sobriety. And so A lot of NA groups and a lot of AA groups are going to tell you, do not date. Do not date. Don't be with someone. Focus on yourself. And that can be true for many, many people. But I think that it's a sliding scale and I think there's a lot of gray area. And if you are able to find a partner who genuinely lifts you up and encourages you without enabling you and without doing the work for you, then you've found something great and you can date. Um as you are going through recovery, I'm doing it. And, uh, it's just really important for me to watch my boundaries. Like I cannot expect my partner to provide me that feeling that Xanax used to give me. And for a while I really expected my partner to like almost perform and just like entertain me and keep me busy and make sure I wasn't taking the pills and have an eye on me. And none of that is fair because people are not here to be your life floaties. Like people are here to be your equal and be swimming at the top of the water with you, not being held under drowned because your parents didn't teach you how to fucking swim. That's not their fault. Okay. Um, So yeah, I think that dating and recovery is a very hard line to walk. Um, And you really just have to be self-aware through it all and make sure that you are taking care of your needs first. Because that quote about how you can't pour from an empty cup is so cliche, but I don't think there's anything more true in this world. Because I have tried to pour from an empty cup and my lord, it feels awful. Like it feels terrible. Yes, it's absolutely like, yeah, when you're trying to pour from an empty cup, I mean, when you have no emotional energy, when you are completely sapped, when you are numb, when you are just connected when you were exhausted then i mean it just it just drains you even more it just and it doesn't it doesn't give them what they need i mean that that's the thing is like it's so you feel this sense of like okay well i just i need to tell them something or i need to engage with them i need to talk to them i need to give them something and the reality is you usually are you're doing something so fake or superficial or forced or performative that it usually just makes people more bitter or unhappy or resentful than if you said, look, I have nothing to give right now. I need to really like zero in on my issues and then I will give you my true self, my full self. Because if you just give them you know, the performance, if you just push through it, then yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just kind of fake. It's delaying the inevitable. There's, there's a conflict there. There's something there that needs, to, that needs to be addressed. I love that. I love that. 
So I used to be really into this thing called martyrdom. You probably know what it is. It's when someone says, these are my needs. You recognize that they're different from your needs. And you say, I'm going to be the hero. I'm going to save the day. I'm going to abandon my needs and put theirs up on a pedestal because that makes me a good person. Because that makes me a martyr. Because that makes me the hero. Guess what? That actually makes you the opposite. That makes you the fucking dragon in Shrek that Donkey marries. That's what that makes you. Because when we, like, when we abandon our own needs, we are then operating out of a state of lack. We are not getting our needs met. We are not going to show up as our best self, our most patient self. And oftentimes a lot of resentment is going to build up. And so you're doing all of this sacrifice and performing all of this martyrdom for somebody who A, didn't fucking ask for it. They did not ask for this. And then B, you're putting strain on the relationship because when you take less care of yourself, someone else has to pick up your slack. Like you need to be taking care of yourself first And then on the side, loving the hell out of this person. But if you are not taking care of yourself, it's like the empty cup thing again. You cannot give. It's not possible from that state. Um, Another thing that I wanted to talk about while we were in here, Garrett, is the normalization of medication. I am in a very holistic community on Instagram. A lot of people who listen to my podcast are very, very holistic. And I really admire and respect this mindset that like, you know, we don't need to rely on substance. We can heal naturally, connect with the earth, herbs, blah, blah, blah. But I also believe there are certain conditions and situations where a chemical is needed to keep someone safe. Example, for me with bipolar one, if I'm not on a mood stabilizer or an antipsychotic, I am likely to cause myself harm and other people around me harm and property and just like all kinds of things like it can be bad I can be like breaking shit in my house because I'm having a freak out and so there are situations where medication makes sense and so Garrett I I just want to hear your thoughts on like why we should normalize meds and why this narrative of like you must be holistic is a little bit dangerous for some people Yes, I think you're totally right. Like there's there's so much that's good about the holistic movement <clears throat> and the narrative around, you know, natural remedies and healing with the body, with breath, with meditation, yoga, all these things. But everybody's different. Everybody has their own brain, their own body, their own experience. And it's important to recognize that some people are in a state where, you know, maybe you won't need medication for your whole life. Maybe there will be a point where you can ease off of it. You can go down to one med or you can go down to the lowest dose or get off it completely. Uh, But that's not going to be the case for everyone. And the reality is every single day we are all putting chemicals into our body, whether it is caffeine, whether it is, you know, THC, nicotine, whether you're taking ibuprofen, even just, I mean, eating food, like humans have to consume things to keep ourselves going. And depending on the situation you're in, sometimes doing breath work is just not enough. Sometimes having just a therapist is not enough. Sometimes going to, you know, a healing retreat is not enough. Um, And for me personally, when I was at my, when I was at one of the most dangerous points in my life, I was at one of the lowest lows and I was becoming very suicidal. When I started smoking marijuana then, it is what kept me alive. It is what connected me to my body. It allowed me to release emotions that I didn't know I had. 
it allowed me to feel a sense of spiritual connection to the world and other people in a way. I, I mean, it was totally, it was a mind-boggling experience. I went from being completely disconnected from everything. I knew that I was bad because I didn't care about any of my ambitions. I didn't care about how it would affect anyone. And by smoking that substance, it brought me into a new space where I then, you know, asked my sister to help get me a therapist, to get me on medication, to get into treatment. You know, I mean, I, and then I continued on with that. And then I also regressed and I fell back. But I kept going and having those moments, whether you need to be on a medication or you need to be doing something for a month, multiple months, a year, several years, you know, however long it is, it's going to be different for everyone. But I guess if you're talking about something that's holistic, holistic is including everything. It's not one thing. It's all the parts of it, the physical health, the mental, the emotional, the social, the spiritual, looking at diet, looking at sleep, looking at relationships, looking at uh, neurotransmitters, hormones, genetics, trauma, like you're having to cover so much. And so I think inclusivity and understanding and patience are, those are like the keys, like those are the pillars. I really love that. And it, it sounded like a huge catalyst for you, like finding medical marijuana as a way to get present in your body. And I am a massive advocate for plant medicine because if there were a plant medicine that could stop my bipolar episodes, good Lord, I would switch over right this second. Okay. Um, because plant medicine is just really awesome. I had a girl named Dari on yesterday and she talked all about the benefits of cacao and how she's been using it and it has been opening her heart chakra and it's just really beautiful. And so I think ayahuasca, magic mushrooms, like all of these things I have such an interest in and I've done so much studying on because it, it's kind of like the where like the the roads meet, what's that called? The intersection, the intersection of wellness, because it's like, it is medicinal. It is a substance. It is a property you are adding to change your um, chemical makeup or your body or whatever. But it's also holistic in the way that these things weren't created in a lab. They grew from the earth. They have always been here. People have been using them for centuries and centuries and centuries. And there are proven to be way more health benefits and less health risk. So yeah, plant medicine is something I could go on and on about. I really love that. I totally, I totally agree. And I, I just wanted to add another point. Like I've had so much frustration in my mental health journey in seeking out help because it's like, where do you go? Who do you talk to? What medication do I get on? What do I try? What do I avoid? Um, and those are complicated questions. It's hard for everyone. Everyone's going to be individually different. But one thing I found so frustrating in talking to psychiatrists, therapists, parents, family, friends, anybody is there's so much stigma or just kind of confusion around around treatment in general and understanding it and i guess i guess what i am referring to by this is like think about it like this there's if you're using marijuana ayahuasca or really any illicit substance you know cocaine or lsd um those are affecting you know your serotonin your dopamine your oxytocin well also what is affecting those things uh 
prescription pharmaceuticals, SSRIs, SNRIs, dopamine reuptake inhibitors, like those medications are also affecting those same chemicals. What does exercise affect? Dopamine, endorphins, you know, serotonin, like same with different diet. There are different, most serotonin actually comes from your diet absorbed through your gut. Um, Yeah, that's something I didn't know about until very recently. And so certain foods are high in the chemicals that are needed to produce that. So you're, you're getting these chemicals interacting with them one way or another. I mean, you know, when you snuggle up with a loved one, you're getting a, a hit of all that stuff. Yes. Um, so you want to do it in a balanced way. You do want to do it in a healthy way. You want to do it in the way that's best for you and your body and your experience. But ultimately you're always going to be going back to these different, these different chemicals, these different aspects of the body. And some people are going to need something like ayahuasca to really get them going. Other people might just need to start jogging, yeah. um, you know, and it just, it just depends. It's different for everyone. Yeah, and that brings up a, a funny story. I remember one time I was expressing to someone who was in their late 40s at my work, a boomer, Love you, Boomer. Sorry, I had to say it. And I started talking about how depressed I was that week and how like I had been manic for months and months. And then I had just swung the other way and was so low. And this coworker goes, have you tried eating an avocado? <laughs> and I'm like, if I had a dollar for every like comment like that I've gotten in my life, have you tried going outside? Have you tried doing yoga? Have you tried? And I'm like, I... I promise you I have. I promise you I have tried everything short of going to the moon to find ways to not have to need mental health treatment because it's expensive and, you know, it's a lot of work. But also on the same hand, I think that the pros outweigh the cons. Um, When you get mental health care and when you make that a priority, you're showing yourself and the world, like, I give a shit about myself. I care about myself enough to invest time, money, and energy into getting better. And I make this a priority instead of just shoving it to the back of my life because I realize that if I ignore my mental health, it will come back for me. It will absolutely come and yank me back down. And so it's really important to be aware of where you're at in your journey and just be always just kind of mentally in check with where you're at. So yeah, and I think these are all good things to keep in mind. Um, I want to thank you guys so much for being here and for giving Wishing You Wellness another listen. Garrett, I especially would like to thank you. I feel like you brought so much insight and wisdom to this episode, and I just feel like my listeners are going to go freaking nuts for it. Thank you so much, Allison. I had a great time being on here. This was an awesome conversation. Yes, it was. And he's tolerating the fact that we have to pass my phone back and forth right now because my mic's not working currently. And so that's how you know someone's a real one when they will sit in your living room with you passing the phone mic back and forth, just having a conversation. (laughs) So if you guys like this episode, please feel free to give it a share on your story and tag me. If you really loved it, consider leaving us a rating on Spotify or Apple. It helps us grow. And I hope you have a beautiful week. I will see you next time. This has been Wishing You Wellness.